0: So again, let yourself sit, listen, and the spirit of listening is a kind of meditative one uh, in which this isn't necessarily, what I'm saying is not necessarily true, Um, it might be, (laughs) but it's really more to test against your own experience and your own innate and fundamental wisdom to look and see what you discover to be true that really works in your own life. Over the course of this winter on Monday night, uh, since the beginning of the year, we've been working with a series of fundamental teachings called the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's instructions from the very first day of his teaching on how one can live, a life of liberation or awakening, of a freedom of the heart. And this eightfold path in some ways seems sequential one after another, but in another it's like a a lotus flower with eight petals or a mandala in which every part comes back to the center. And in the center is that possibility of the freedom of the heart, here and now, wherever we are. Wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, all of them are both vehicles to free the heart and they're expressions of our understanding in this world. Now this week then we get to the next step, the sixth of the Eightfold Path, which is called right effort or a wise effort. And how to make wise effort is a key to spiritual life. Wise effort or right effort, energy, most fundamentally is the effort to pay attention, the effort to be present and awake and see what is true in front of us all the kinds of efforts we can make, the most fundamental, wise effort in spiritual life is to be where we are and see it clearly, to be conscious or mindful. From the Buddha, Master your senses, what you taste and smell, what you see and hear. In all things be a master of what you do and say and think. Be free. Are you quiet? Quiet your body. Quiet your mind. And by your own efforts, waken yourself. Know yourself and live joyfully. Follow the truth of the way. Reflect on it. Make it your own. Live it. It will always sustain you. In a certain way, the teaching of right effort or wise effort, is a reminder of our nobility. It is a kind of reminder of the human inspiration of spirit, not just to get through our life, but to honor it, to respect it, to be present for it, to delight in it as well. I mean, yes, we have to be present for the sorrows of life, but also if you look at figures that we commonly admire like the Dalai Lama or my own teacher Ajahn Chah, they have wonderful senses of innocence and humor and joy and presence and delight like a child, as well as deep compassion and wisdom. Don Juan, in his teachings to Carlos Castaneda, said, There are some people who are very careful about the nature of their acts. Their happiness is to act with the full knowledge that they don't have time. Therefore, their acts have a peculiar power. Acts have power, especially when the person acting knows that those acts are their last battle. There's a strange, consuming happiness in acting with the full knowledge that whatever one is doing may very well be one's last act on earth. Only as a warrior, as a spiritual warrior, he goes on, can one withstand the path of knowledge. A warrior sees everything as a challenge, while an ordinary person sees them simply as a blessing or a curse. For a spiritual warrior, there are only challenges, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. Challenges are simply challenges. So there's a quality of impeccability that is invited, reminded in this wise effort. And for all of us, we know the sense of joy that comes when we live with a whole heart. And if you reflect back, as I might, on how many things that we've done half-heartedly, whether work or school or in our community or family, all the things that we do that are sort of sleepwalking or not so present or not giving ourselves to. And reflect on those and feel the energy of that. and then continue to reflect and remember those times and things to what which you have given your whole heart, which you did them as fully as you could. And what's remarkable is that it doesn't even matter how they turn out. What matters underneath it all is how much care and attention and love and wholeness we bring to that relationship, to that moment, to that garden, to that event that we are tending. I just finished teaching this last weekend with Luis Rodriguez, Latino poet, Malidoma Somme, a West African medicine man, Michael Mead, a mythologist. And we were teaching and talking about what we'd learned from the last almost 10 years of doing retreats for young men from Chicago and Los Angeles and Oakland, young men from the inner cities, many whom whom are in trouble or in danger. And they're in trouble or in danger, sometimes they seek out danger because of the usual things of being abandoned or poverty, or maybe being tested in the wrong way, you know, like standardized Mm tests, as if we're supposed to have standardized people and standardized children, or maybe because of the racism they encountered or the laws like three strikes that fill our prisons. But one thing that's come clear in working with these young men, young people, is that if you listen to them, underneath a lot of defensiveness and withdrawal at times, they care passionately about their life and what they do and who they are. And to work with them requires meeting their passion and their fire, and even their love of danger, was something equally filled with fire. And you see it in the Palestinian youth who are throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails, and in the, you know revolutionaries in the mountains in Mexico and San Cristóbal de las Casas and among the Kurds and up in Seattle in the demonstrations last year there's a certain kind of passion and fire and aliveness now if you look in the monasteries that train these practices of awareness and compassion they also have a lot of fire in them one monastery i practiced in they would tell the story of how after the buddha's enlightenment he in this in the myth of the buddha after his night of enlightenment and being under the tree, the Bodhi tree, he then stood for seven days and stared at the tree in gratitude, kind of just gazed on the tree as if to bow to it, with affection for sheltering him. Well, standing seven days, it sounds kind of nice, you know, tree gazing. That's okay for the first hour or two. But in these monasteries, you would actually learn to sit for an hour, and then for three hours, and then for 12 hours, and then for 24 hours, or 48 hours. Or you would stand for 24 hours and not move. It was called mastering a posture. My teacher Ajahn Chah said there were two kinds of friends. In Thai it's called Puen Kīn and Pūn dai. Pūn Kīn are um, friends that you eat with. They're basically party friends. And Puen dai are the ones that are there with you until death. They're life and death friends. And he said there's the same thing in spiritual practice. There's that which is done kind of for comfort, quiet yourself down, be a little more kind or ethical, all of very good things, and your life will be better, more in harmony with the Dharma or the Tao. But the second kind of practice doesn't have anything to do with comfort. And it doesn't matter what happens. It is the dedication to freedom. Or as one Zen master says, cut all your bargaining. Just do it. Now I worry sometimes or I wonder because we're in Marin County here at Spirit Rock uh, about it being too comfortable and kind of sugarcoating the, the the teachings because in the monasteries you do a year retreat or a three-year retreat or you go in a cave or you sit out in the jungle in the forest where there are still Tigers and a lot of wild animals, and mosquitoes and malaria, or you sit all night in the charnel grounds watching the fire, the funeral pyres, or you sit with your boredom and heat in the tropical mosquitoes for weeks and weeks and you hear the same Dharma talk that's incredibly boring over and over again on the Eightfold Path for the 10 millionth time. And in it, somehow, it awakens a steadiness and a fearlessness and a courage and a centeredness on the earth. And certainly the two-month retreat that we teach, sitting and walking in silence for two months, begins to offer some of those practices. But I guess the question for us is, what would allow us to practice in a way that is truly wholehearted? To be reminded that we have a courage and a love of courage. O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember that no matter what circumstances you're in, sorrow and betrayal and loss and praise and blame and anger and all those things, it is possible to awaken. And right effort or wise effort is that willingness to take the circumstances of our life and bring to them the spirit of attention and compassion, this too. And in the Tibetan tradition, you pray for suffering. May I be granted appropriate sufferings, enough sufferings, so that I can truly develop patience and love and compassion and and truly develop a wise heart. Imagine asking for it. It's not our usual prayers. So how to do this? There is, in the ground of wise effort or right effort, the need for acknowledging the suffering of this human realm. And it's impermanence that circumstances are always changing and they are not in our control. The eight worldly winds praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain are changing all the time. This is the truth to reflect deeply on it. And also, for wise effort, it said, to remember our own death, the brevity of life, like Don Juan suggests. Here's a poem from Galway Canal. And I read it. I think about it. I was talking to my daughter the other day. Um, and something came up in the conversation. Someone had died. Um, and she, so we were talking about death and the end of life and I said, you know, I remember when you were really little you were just two years old and the first time I had to tell you about death and it was actually quite scary, I said to her because you were in your, in your bedroom where you had this little bed by the window there was this great big moth that had died and it was dried on the, kind of at the bottom on the, on the windowsill And you saw it, and you wanted to pick it up, and I picked it up, and I showed it to you, and you wanted it to fly. And in that moment, I realized that no one had ever told you that things die. And it was a real moment for me, and finally I said, well, you know what happened? This died. It had a life for a time, and everything does. And then the form that it takes and the life that it lives ends. And you looked at me and you smiled and said, oh, you weren't, you weren't disturbed about it at all, I said, actually. It was all right for you. But I think that's because when you're that little, you might say that they don't understand, but actually I think it's that you live in a world that's beyond birth and death, that you're still connected to that sacred time, that timeless reality. This is Galway Canal facing death with his daughter, I've heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I've stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die. Little Maud, I would blow the flame out of your silver cup. I would suck the dirt from your fingernail. I would brush your sprouting hair of the dying light. I would scrape the rust off your ivory bones. I would help death escape through the little ribs of your body. I would alchemize the ashes of your cradle back into wood. I would let nothing of you go ever until washerwomen feel the clothes fall asleep in their hands and hens scratch their spells across hatchet blades and rats walk away from the cultures of the plague and iron twist weapons toward the true north and Greece refuses to slide in the machinery of progress, and men feel as free on earth as fleas on the body of men, and lovers no longer whisper to the ones beside them in the dark, Oh, you who will no longer be. And yet, perhaps this is the reason you cry. This is the nightmare you wake crying from, being forever. In the pre trembling of a house that falls. Being forever in the pre trembling of a house that falls. Because death is stalking us, life is mysterious and alive. So, what does wise effort? mean It means to come into the reality of this day which we are given once and use it to reawaken our own nobility our buddha nature Traditionally it said one dimension is to disentangle ourselves and stay free wherever we get caught wherever we're obsessed and fighting and entangled and lost and frightened, that is the place to make the effort to release, to let go. Again, the Buddha says, I know of no other thing, my friends, that brings as much suffering as an untrained mind. My friends, I know of no other thing that brings as much happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. Or again, another passage. If you are filled with grasping, your sorrows swell like grass after the rain. Like a monkey in the forest, you jump from tree to tree. But if, You learn to release your grasping. Your sorrows will fall from you like drops of water from a lotus flower and you will rest free. Disentangling. We are here in the present moment and experiences come, sights and sounds and tastes and smells, all the time touching our senses. And here we are sitting and breathing, it's possible to meet those experiences and get lost in them and entangled and fight and struggle and need, you know. It's also possible to bow to them, to see them as they are and touch them with compassion and release that in any moment to be free. I was reading the account of a Vietnam veteran who every year in a certain month would go out, he was He was put in prison a couple of times, would go out in this particular month and rob a store. And he was living on the edge, you know, anyway, sometimes homeless. And finally, it dawned on the people that were trying to work with him and help him to get the story. And the story was that that particular month That day in March was the day when he had gone out with his platoon and everybody but himself and one other man had been killed. And every year that day would come. He didn't even use a real gun. He used a play gun, but he got a gun and he went and he had to reenact it because he didn't know how to let it go, that trauma. And yet one of the great gifts of our humanity is to learn that it is possible to let go, that it is possible to heal, that it is possible through attention and compassion to touch those patterns that we've been caught in so long and let them go. That's the first strong teaching of wise effort, to disentangle ourselves and stay free. The opposite side, the Buddha says, well, here's a little line from Hafiz. He says, dear ones, it is the time to end the mental lawsuits that clog your brain. Let go, he says. Dear ones, it is time to end the mental lawsuits that clog your brain. The opposite side that the Buddha speaks of, one is the effort to disentangle ourselves from greed and fear and obsession and entanglement. The opposite is that of nourishment, to nourish presence, to nourish equanimity, to nourish ease and loving kindness and beauty and joy in the heart, to do that which brings those alive in our life. Again, from the Dhammapada, The Fletcher channels water to his the farmer channels water to his land, the Fletcher whittles his arrows, the carpenter turns his wood, and the wise direct their minds. There is a, a training or a remembering or a directing to live our life and attend to each moment as if we were planting seeds in a garden to nourish in this moment, no matter what the circumstances, clarity, kindness, freedom, respect. And sometimes we do it from the inside, we remember it, and sometimes we do it by the outer circumstances, by putting us in a circumstance where we're called upon to love, to be present for another, to be noble in ways that we may not even be sure we can do. The Dalai Lama puts it this way, he says, the moment you think of the well-being of others, your mind widens. That is to say, concern for others is not just the result of freeing oneself from self-centeredness and so forth, but it is also a means to do so. The moment you think of the benefit and the blessings that can come to others around you, your mind broadens and widens as we free ourselves from the patterns of fear and grasping and clinging that keep us from our true state. Out of that experience arises a natural compassion. The small sense of self dissolves and you see the interconnectedness of beings, you're less preoccupied with your own problems, and therefore much more connected with the blessings and the needs of all together. To disentangle ourselves and release, to nourish and plant seeds of that which is beneficial. Certain texts emphasize this kind of effort. What is wise effort? The effort to avoid, the effort to overcome, the effort to develop, and the effort to maintain, says the Buddha. The effort to avoid herein the practitioner rouses their energy to avoid the arising of unskillful things that have not yet arisen and possessed Of the noble direction of the senses, they inwardly experience instead a feeling of freedom and joy into which these entanglements cannot enter or stick. The practitioner rouses their will to overcome those unskillful things that have already arisen in them. They do not remain in the energy of greed, of hatred, of clinging of delusion, but abandon, release, dispel them. And what is the effort to develop? Herein, the practitioner cultivates and nourishes through their energy those wholesome things that have not yet arisen and makes the effort to plant the seeds, rouses their energy for that which is beautiful to grow in them. And the effort to maintain is to maintain those things that have arisen and let them blossom into full perfection and maturity. Now sometimes it goes on and gets a little bit more fierce. What's the word from the Buddha? Truly for a disciple who is possessed with the faith on this path, that awakening is possible and has penetrated the teachings, it is fit to think, though the skin and bones wither away and the flesh and blood of this body dry up, I shall not give up my efforts to attain that liberation of heart that is possible for human beings. This is called right effort. I don't usually read that. It doesn't seem to fit our culture here in the Bay Area so well. Ramana Maharshi said of enlightenment, those who succeed do so only with proper effort. And there's a kind of danger, the reason that I don't read it, and that is that wise effort needs to be balanced in the culture in which we live that is a culture of ambition and striving and self-judgment. The danger being that we can and do easily make things worse, tie knots in ourselves, increase our struggle, reinforce our unworthiness, repeat our trauma by trying to be somebody that we're not through the misuse of effort. So wise effort also needs to be balanced. And almost everyone knows the parable of the lute, where the Buddha is sitting there in the cool forest with Sona. And Sona, his disciple, is thinking, I am filled with energy, yet my heart is not yet free. And goes to speak to the Buddha and says, Can you assist me? And the Buddha said, Tell me, Sona, were you not a player of the lute, skilled in playing music? Yes, I was, sir. And tell me, when the strings of the lute were too taut, was the lute tuneful and easily played? It was not. And when the strings were too loose of your lute, was it then tuneful or easily playable? Again, it was not, sir. But then when the strings of your lute were tuned neither too tight nor too loose, but to the perfect pitch on that day, then did your lute not have a wondrous sound that was easily playable and pleasing to the ears and the hearts of those around? Indeed it was, and so that was the instruction he was given in meditation. We need to be wise about wise effort. And what it asks of us in some way, yes, is an impeccability, a courage, a willingness to take the difficulties of life and make them into the place of compassion and wakefulness. But it also requires constancy, a steadiness, and a kindness or mercy. Because awakening doesn't come by wrenching the heart open. Flowers don't open by pulling on the petals. A Japanese proverb puts it this way, one kind word can warm 3 winters months. Even a moment of kindness can make all the difference. There you are struggling whether it's in meditation or in work or in a relationship. And just the moment of bringing that tenderness can transform it all. So there's a paradox. One way of understanding wise effort is as a development, a practice to nourish, to let go, to abandon, to purify, to cleanse, to to plant seeds, to become better. And we do that, and it's helpful. But this places it in time. And the second dimension of wise effort is that which is timeless. A young man came to a Zen master, very avid, the way only young men can be, and said, I'm here and I'm gonna really practice. How long will it take to attain enlightenment? And the Zen master kind of took the measure of the fellow and said, ten years. Ten years, what if I really give myself to it? Really work at it. Zen master looked at me and said, in that case, 20 years. (laughs) The young man protested, hey, wait a second, that's not right. Why did you double it? That's not, I mean, if I really do it. And the Zen master said, ah, yes, in your case, it might take 30. (laughs) Enlightenment is not about grasping or becoming something. It is about the end of grasping, to be with what is true. Remember this passage from Krishnamurti. When the mind is still, silent, open, neither seeking nor resisting, then it is possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free. Sacred effort is the effort to open and be aware of what is true. What we seek is what we are. There's a longing for home, a longing for approval. The universe obviously approves of you, that's why you're here. The traditional image is of this old pot that's being used by some homeless person. It was a beggar in the old Indian story, but it's a homeless person now in the streets of San Francisco or San Rafael or Berkeley or whatever, begging this old pot. And then someone sees it and gives the beggar a little bit of money and sells it at auction, and it's this priceless antique. It's not what's in it that matters, but the pot itself. And we are the pot. We forget who we really are. The sage, again, Ramana Maharshi, he says, there's no greater joke than this, that being the reality ourselves, we seek to gain reality. We think that there is something binding our reality and that it must be destroyed before reality is gained. It is ridiculous. The day will dawn when you yourself will laugh at all your efforts to be free and simply let go. And that which is on the day of laughter is also now. In a much simpler way, everybody knows the old story of the Hasidic rabbi, counselor, master, and the person, the man came to see him one of his disciples, and said, I have a great unhappiness where I live, in my house. It is too crowded, it's too busy, the people are getting on my nerves. Um, I don't know how to live with all this, it's terrible. What should I do, Rabbi? How do I live a quiet, contented life? And the Rabbi said, have you any animals that you keep? It was a village, of course. We have some chickens and a pig, yes. We have two goats out in the yard, and then, of course, the donkey I use. He said, well, it's quite simple, my friend. I give you a prescription. Bring the chickens, the goat, the pig, and the donkey into your house. And so, of course, the man did. Bring them in and have them live with you. And however bad it was before, it became dirty, smelly, raucous, horrible, much... And the master said, we have to do this. I mean, this is sort of like, take two aspirin and call me next week, right? Bring them in the house and visit me in a week. The man came back. Oh, it's horrible. I can't say... However bad it was, it is so much worse now. What, what are you having me do this for? Oh, Master, why did you make me do this? It's so terrible. The Master said, all right, now take them out. <laughs> so the man went home, and chickens in the yard, goat in the backyard, donkey tied up where it is, the pig back in the pen. Came back to visit the Master a day or two later. The Master said, how is it at home? He said, oh, Master, it is so quiet, it is so spacious, it is so easy. We go around looking for something that we don't have and not wanting to be with what we have. My teacher, Nisargadat, used to shake his head. He said all the time, you are wanting what you don't have and not wanting what you have. If you wish to be enlightened, it's so simple, just reverse it. Why not want what you have and not want what you don't have? You could be free. There is a simplicity and a balance in this wise effort. Not straining not retreating from the world, being with just this much, was my teacher's phrase, Ajahn Chah, just this much, this moment as it is, the suffering of this moment, to awaken to it, to bow to it, to give it its respect, the joy of this moment, the beauty of this moment, to bow to it, to give it its respect, to honor it, to be with things as they are, so simple, The Gettysburg Address, 226 words. The 23rd Psalm, 118 words. The Sutra of the Buddhas on the nature of selflessness, which was given in a thousand people sitting around and became enlightened, 86 words. The U.S. Government Department of Agriculture Pricing Directives for Broccoli. 16,539 words. Wisdom is really a simple thing. Love is really a simple thing, isn't it? Either it's here or it's not. It's that simple. Either the heart is open or we're frightened. There is a simplicity and balance in wise effort, not by strain nor by retreating from the world, but taking the seat in the center of all things. As the Buddha, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of good families, remember who you are moment by moment and then from this simplicity we respond in the spring we plant seeds in the fall we harvest when there are people who are hungry we try to feed them and when there's injustice we do our best to help notice if you will in your own work with your boss or your employees, or with money. Notice in your family, with your parents, or your children, in your love relationship. Notice in your meditation with your own breath, or body, or mind. Pay attention. When is it too tight? When are you really struggling? too ambitious, entangled, caught up, too much judgment. It's pretty clear. It doesn't take but a moment to notice that. And notice in your work or family or love relationship or money or meditation when it's too loose. When you give up. When you're without dedication, depressed, doubtful. Just notice that. And take a breath. And then come back to that center. Because we know inside this ground of nobility. Unclench the heart. Steady yourself. Be present for things as they are. And then your activity becomes an expression of your awakening. It becomes a vehicle for the Tao. And we all know this sometimes. You know it. I mean, you hear about it as the the perfect game that some tennis player or basketball player describes. But you all know it, the perfect piece of music where the music just became the players and the players the music. We all know it. It's so simple. From the Tao to Ching, If you open yourself to the Tao, you are at one with the Tao. You can embody it completely. If you open yourself to loss, you are at one with loss. You can accept it completely. If you open yourself to insight, you are at one with insight. You can use it completely. Open yourself to the Tao, to the way things are. Then trust your heart's response and everything will fall into place, or another. Fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Chase after money and security and your heart will never unclench. Care about people's approval and you will be in their power. Do your work, then step back, the true path to serenity. When you are content to be simply yourself and don't compare or compete, everyone will respect you and the Tao fulfills itself. There's something kind of mysterious about this effort or energy in spiritual practice. Yes, there's a part of dedication, purifying, abandoning things that are harmful, nourishing things that are good, changing and serving. But there's another part in which it really does it itself. All we have to do is love and be present. The bee gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty, says the Buddha. So the wise one learns to wander through this world, bringing harm to none and blessing to all. And in the end, right effort is not about fixing ourselves or the human realm, but being with and seeing the world as it is and loving it, caring for it as it is. There was a story that Michael Mead told in the course of this weekend, an old Apache story. And the Apaches of the White Mountains tell of an old woman the oldest woman, the grandmother, the great-grandmother who lives far away in a cave, in a mysterious cave where they haven't yet built roads into that part of the wilderness. And in fact, President Clinton signed an order saying there should not be roads built into the old woman's wilderness, I'm happy to say. And she's been in that cave since the beginning of the world, Maybe she is the world. And this old great grandmother is weaving. And on her loom she weaves this great cloak. And the cloak is the most luminous and radiant imaginable piece of fabric. Its radiance matches the world. And she sits there and slowly weaves and spins and puts the most beautiful colors into this rainbow cloak. And then she starts to work on the edges of it and into the fringes she ties eagle feathers and porcupine quills, fresh branches from the willow trees and weaves them in. But every once in a while she has to get up from her loom, this old woman who weaves the world, and go over and stir her big pot. You know, the great-grandmothers also have the pot that cooks everything that's nourishing in the world. And so she has to stir the pot that brings nourishment to the world. And as she's stirring the pot, there's an old black dog that lies by the fire, and it gets up while she's stirring the pot, and it walks over to where she's weaving, and it grabs the porcupine quills, and the eagle feathers, and the fresh willow branches, (laughs) and pulls out all her weaving while she's stirring the pot. (laughs) And then she has to go back and start weaving it all over again. Now the old ones, the elders who tell this story, and who love the grandmother and the great-grandmother who made the world, also love the old black dog because he's equally strange and mysterious as the woman. And the elders who tell this story say that it's possible that if this old woman ever finishes weaving the cloak of radiance, then that will be the end of the world. And so sometimes it is the old black dogs that are troublesome and pulling things apart and making things more difficult that are the things that keep us alive and keep the blessings of this world unfolding in the most amazing and creative ways. The idea in the deepest place of this wise energy or wise effort is not to fix this world because it's far too mysterious for that, but to see it as it is, the 10,000 joys, and the 10,000 sorrows, the weaving of beauty and suffering, the unbearable sorrows, and the unspeakable beauty, the mystery of it, to see it as it is, and to offer your compassion. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to bring awakening to them all. Let's sit for a minute. as you sit, a little bit of reflection, just the tuning of your lute, reflect a little on the key places in your life where it might be time to loosen the strings a little, to let go, to not grasp so much. You can know what they are. Then let yourself reflect and remember those places where your lute is too loose and you need dedication, impeccability, more care, more alive energy. Remember that you have this capacity to tune your instrument so that there's beautiful music that comes, even in difficulty. There can be wisdom and compassion. Do you think there could be a world without trouble? Just one or two very brief announcements and a little chant and we'll go into the night. Again, a reminder to let people know, because we didn't have it in our main newsletter, that Ram Das will be teaching here on Sunday night. Um, Also, I want to thank you for your support, your donations, your care, your volunteering. Um, The money that you offer helps keep... Spirit Rock open and available, all of its programs, and it also allows me to continue to teach, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, It's still rainy and dark, winter, even snowed today in some places. In the Berkeley Hills there was snow, it was lovely. Um, So when you leave, be careful, there are even some people who walk here on the road, so take your time, go slowly, pay attention. The little chant we'll do before we go out into the winter evening is this single word namo, which means to bow to. In India, India, when you meet someone and you greet them, you put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the divine in you, or I see you, I see who you really are. Um, and the root of that word is this Sanskrit word namo, to honor or pay respects, So we'll chant it together nine times, and as you do, again, with this quality of wise energy, you can bow to whatever is going on just now in you, in your heart, and body, in your life, to tend to it with care, or you can reflect on the things in the world that deserve your respect or your compassion. na 아멘 uh-huh. filled with blessings, may you find in yourself that wise balance, neither grasping nor forgetting the world, but really being present and awake. Thank you. See you again.